Hello everyone, uh, welcome and we will start this presentation in a couple of minutes. All right, thank you for joining us. Well, once again, we'll start this presentation in about a minute while we wait for everyone to uh, get settled in. All right, hello everyone and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, the evolution of safety lessons learned from real events in history, presented by VETA. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine. I will moderate today's presentation. First, I'd like to apologize for our technical difficulties on Tuesday. And if you're joining us once again, or you're attending this presentation for the first time, thank you so much. On behalf of the National Safety Council, whose employees are currently working away from the office, we hope that you, your loved ones, and all the people in your lives are remaining safe and healthy wherever they are. We'll start the presentation in a couple minutes, but first there are some housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speaker and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those in the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or the magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speaker. To ask a question, click the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen, type your question, and click the send button. Please feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but we might not get to every question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. After this presentation, we'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little later. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, let's introduce our speaker, Laurie Kanapi. Laurie has more than two decades of experience in environmental safety and health. She is the regulatory chair for the Gulf Coast Safety and Training Group. Vice Chair for the American Society of Safety Professionals Energy Corridor Section, former Chair for Safe Gulf, and former Chair for the API RPT8 Committee. Again, we'd like to thank you all for tuning into this presentation. Laurie, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for taking the time to join us today or to rejoin us today in discussing the events that have changed regulations to hopefully prevent future occurrences. Unfortunately, there are many events that could have been chosen. I say unfortunately because changes in regulations are most often lagging. They are the result of something that has occurred. 
today as a starting off point as we continue to develop this series. I don't have my forward button. Oh, excuse me, I'm losing my forward button. Okay, perfect. So this is our agenda from Chernobyl and Coconut Grove to Deepwater Horizon and the Station Nightclub Fire. History has given us many lessons on the impact of safety and what we can do to improve it. This webinar will take key lessons learned from history and apply them to current safety situations today. So we're gonna look at some historical fires because there were several important regulations that came about because of these fires and lessons that were learned. As you can see, these are the top 10 deadliest public assembly and nightclub fires in the US history. The reason this title is separated like that is because many, many years ago, nightclubs were not considered a place of assembly. And that was definitely changed after the Coconut Grove fire. And while there have been many fires, we are gonna look at Coconut Grove and the station nightclub. These tragedies made significant changes to life-saving results and to fire saving. So the Coconut Grove fire, if you're not aware of it, it was the deadliest nightclub fire in US history. Coconut Grove nightclub burned on November 28, 1942, killing 492 persons. Coconut Grove was a very popular nightclub. Um, obviously it had a restaurant. Back in those days, it did not have a lot of safety features in place. They weren't even in existence. A lot of flammable materials, open fires with you know, smoking and ashtrays and lighting and that type of thing. All those things that we caution about now. Um, and even especially from me personally, when you're looking at holidays, we have to be very careful of not putting live evergreens or things like that around a Christmas decoration because, again, you're promoting a flammable material. So this is a statement from Casey Grant, who's a professional engineer. And Casey Grant wrote an amazing article on the Coconut Grove fire and interviewed many of the survivors. If you have not had an opportunity or you're not aware of this writing, you should. It gives really great detail of what happened and changes that were taken in place. And as I mentioned, that fake palm tree that was highly combustible led to the spread of the fire and to the rest of the decorations. When you go to the area now, there really isn't any visual reminder of where the original Coconut Grove Lounge was. Through years, through development, through progress, the buildings have been refurbished or knocked down or roads have been put in. However, the impact on the residents, first responders, and the safety codes were memorialized by this plaque in the sidewalk outside of where a Coconut Grove stood. Roles and responsibilities and authorities. Those three words stay true no matter what industry you work in, no matter what you're talking about. You must have clear lines of responsibility regardless of a private or public entity. Without an incident response plan in place, messages can be miscommunicated at times, creating more danger to everyone involved. As you can see, there were many organizations that were there at the time of the fire. Unfortunately, 
there was not a good plan of action. They did not have a good chain of command. And everybody was running around trying to get things done, not communicating properly and not having a good plan in place. And that's one of the things that we always talk about is having your emergency response plans in place. In place and communicated. Being in place but not being communicated is of no value either. So this is just a tidbit out of the Emergency Operations Center from National Fire Protection Agency 1600. And it really was the big thing that said, you must have an emergency operation plan. It's critical and it's not something that can be fluffed away or it's not something that can be ignored. And drills with those are very important as well. This particular slide is the graphic and depending upon your organization, you may be required by your regulator to have an incident command system in place and practice annual drills and give those drills back to the regulator. One thing that I wanted to show in this particular slide, you have your incident commander, your public information officer, your liaison officer, and your safety officer. If you notice, all of those go down to the subcategories and the liaison officer is a critical figure. While it may not sound like so much, it really is because that's the person that's responsible for communicating who's where, what's going on, what's been remediated, what's been taken care of, what's been put out. That person is keeping all the other departments, all the other response teams in the loop of everything that's happening. So you have to be very clear with your liaison officer that they understand the significant importance of their role. This particular slide here really talks about the importance of training and drills. There were many available hands at that time of the Coconut Grove fire because there had re because of the war, there had recently been training, mock disaster training in the area. We see that periodically where we'll train for catastrophic injuries, a bomb or some type of, you know, dire existence or dire event that happens so that we have all the emergency responders in and we know what codes to use to draw resources from other parts of our county or even our state, depending upon how big you are. This, even though there was not a good emergency planning in place, even though there was not good regulation in place because it was so long ago, the people were in tune with what they needed to do as far as saving lives because they had just undergone a rigorous training and drill because of the war. It just was coincidental and it could not have happened at a better time. They knew what to do and they moved into action very quickly. And regulations. Regulations, like I mentioned at the beginning, usually occur after an event. You know, regulations, it would be great if we could all think ahead and be aware of what possibly might happen and to the extent of what might happen. But unfortunately, lessons learned are usually where our regulations and our rules come from. So, you know, over time, many of these regulations have been reviewed and revised to keep up with improvements in technology and risks from technology. One of the things that we have to remember is that sometimes being quicker, quicker faster isn't necessarily safer. 
So we're going to look quickly at this, not quickly, but we're going to look at the station nightclub fire. This was the fourth deadliest nightclub fire in U.S. history. And after this fire, the National Fire Protection Agency fast-tracked a lot of changes. And one of the biggest changes that they fast-tracked was fire sprinklers, uh, grandfathering, old buildings needed to be into code with new buildings and not having that stigma about it being a non-assembly occupation. There were really significant changes. The station nightclub was built in 1946. It was a wooden nightclub and it was grandfathered into an exception of many of the laws requiring ceiling fire sprinklers. That grandfathering is no longer allowed. There was a clause that ceiling fire sprinklers were not required for buildings built before 1976. As a result of the fire, there was a reduction in the occupancy from 300 to 100 for a group 2-A, and for group A, the occupancies were capped at 50. This agreement for the reduction in occupants was supported by the same occupancy requirement for panic bars on exit doors. So on top of knowing what your fire rules are, you also need to be aware of what your status is as far as assemblies, occupations, and what you're manufacturing or doing in that building, because all of those factor as to which life-saving codes you have to abide by. So there were two fires in February of 2003 that really prompted um, a lot of these changes. And like we say, the, the station uh, fire in Rhode Island was the big catalyst. So this is how quick that timeline happened. And for any of you that are aware, sometimes it can take years to get a proposed rule, get your comments out, get your comments rectified, and then make it a final ruling. Sometimes when you have a final ruling, it can be a matter of a couple of months where they say you have to be compliant. They could stagger the compliance where you have to meet this part of it within six months, this part of it within a year and a half, this part of it within three years. And sometimes it can take several years to get to compliance. They felt so strongly about this particular incident that they put together a team and made this happen in a year, which is amazing, absolutely amazing. And this fast track gave credibility to the urgency and the dedication to the members that put the TIAs together. At one point, because of the nightclubs not being considered a place of assembly, they were exempt and nightclubs are everywhere. And that was really a very poor ruling. And, and I'm personally happy to see that it's changed because crowds are big and crowds are gonna be coming up again as our COVID restrictions are lifted. So another regulation is NFPA 1600 and the latest revision is 2019. It is always important that you verify you're using the latest edition of any regulation or standard. 2013 was before 2019. So for this particular standard, it talks about continuity, emergency and crisis management. It highlights emphasis on crisis management, maintain crisis management capabilities, assign responsibilities like we spoke about with your liaison officer, plan, do, check, act. Sometimes those methodologies stay true and stay accurate regardless through time and regardless of the industry. 
A significant addition to this standard was the new Annex L on data interoperability for emergency management. It also provides criteria to fill those gaps when you do your gap assessment and you do your gap analysis. Annex L advises that the organization must assess the hazards it might face and evaluate its current data interoperability capabilities in the areas of emergency management, continuity, and crisis management. Most organizations may find that in comparison to their vision of success, their current data interoperability systems will have cap capability gaps. The next step is to strategically plan to close those gaps. Do not take a quick fix to closing those gaps, such as we'll add more training, we'll hire more people, we'll outsource or buy a new software program. Truly look at what your gaps are and what you need to do to make these closures sustainable and verify that you do have the financial and the human resources to keep those closures sustainable. It's critical that this is not just a check-in-the-box paperwork activity. NFPA 101 Life Safety Codes. This one was just revised in 2021. So this is lots, lots of good stuff in here. So this is a summary of NFPA 101, and obviously it addresses the minimum life safety exiting requirements for occupants in case of fires and emergencies. It's a performance-oriented code, and it's written in specific language. The code made the distinction between new and existing buildings. It does not have any grandfathering. It does not allow any building to fall below the requirements for an existing occupancy as of this year. It requires for prompt improvements unless there's some you know, significant alteration, change, building code, or whatever that may need to be looked at. And then you can certainly work with your regulatory bodies to establish your timeline of compliance. It's important to remember that while most organizations have to comply with OSHA, OSHA references many other industry publications that you must comply with as well, and the Life Safety Code is definitely one of them. So there's 43 chapters in NFPA 101. For this webinar, we're going to focus on the chapters that affect the workplace. Specifically, when I'm talking about workplace, I'm talking about industrial, manufacturing, warehousing, that type of thing. The document itself provides information for daycares, educational, housing, lodging, anything can be and is a workplace environment. But the ones that I listed are applicable to the typical things, typical types of occupations that we think of when we're talking about workplace environments. People that do line assembly, you know, uh, machining and high rack storage and all of those kind of things. As you can see in here, these are the important ones. Classification of occupancy and hazard of contents. You have to determine what rating of hazard your occupancy has to determine what type of safety measures you have in place. Your means of egress, 
fire protection, interior finishing, because again, we spoke about that. We're back during coconut growth. Things were not flame resistant and they weren't even thinking about having fire resistant materials to help slow down um, the building catching on fire or injury to people. Um, and looking at industrial occupations and storage occupations, because we do have such a large warehousing industry now with a lot of these major online businesses that purchase from a third party. They don't manufacture the part themselves. They purchase from a third party and have warehousing units that then they ship out. That's a major income and a major industry right now. So we need to look at safety requirements for storage occupations. And then again, documents on hazardous materials. That was a, a good chapter in that particular regulation. It also has Annex B. Annex B is interesting because it's evacuation equipment. And Annex B gives more detail on controlled descents, platform rescues, evacuation equipment, escape systems, and those type of things to again, give you better detail. And then as we spoke about Annex C, documents for hazardous materials, flammable liquid storage, transportation, gas piping systems, and explosives. There's a lot of detail in this book um, that can provide great resources for you. NFPA 5000, again, 2021. I'm quite, I I'm interested as to how many folks didn't realize that there were so many fire protection rules that you needed to abide by. We typically think of sprinklers and fire extinguishers and that type of thing, but there are a lot. The Fire Protection Agency has a lot of requirements that you need to be aware of. So this one here, the NFPA 5000 is very similar to the 101 Life Safety Codes, but this particular document talks about the materials to be used because it's building construction and safety codes. It talks about concrete, steel, wood, and so on. It discusses electrical, plumbing, mechanical. There is a cross-reference between these two, uh, these two codes. I wanted to show this one because again, construction is such a major part of our industry that your business may very well be part of the construction trade. And this is definitely a regulation that you would need to be aware of. Emergency exits and emergency planning. So OSHA is very clear on exits and emergency planning. This standard, 1910-38, uh, describes the number of exits, where the exits discharge into, that the doors must be unlocked during occupancy, and there must be enough door to occupant ratio in order to handle the amount of people in an exit. There must also be an emergency panic bar for quick exit, and it must be within a reasonable distance, size, height, width, and illumination. There is a ruling for a delay on an emergency exit door. There are very clear guidelines depending upon the hazards associated with the room or the type of occupation going on there. There needs to be an audible, visible alarm. Uh, this rationale over the door is because thought of theft to keep the door from being opened and allowing theft to occur. From an HR standpoint, it also makes sure that people can't sneak out a back door 
and not clock out or sneak in late or any of those type of things. Um, and I've worked in factories where there was a delay on the emergency exit doors and you'd be working long and all of a sudden the red emergency light would go flashing around because somebody cracked open the door. Typically for me, that was in my electroplating area because we were using cyanide and we were using other types of plating baths with hazardous chemicals. So we wanted that room to be extremely safe and extremely secure. If you choose to use a delayed egress, verify your requirements with your local OSHA, if you have a state plan and definitely with your fire laws. Fire, interior fire doors <clears throat> must have their fire rating plate on the door frame. I don't know how many of you are aware of that, but when you look at a fire rating door, the fire won't be able to burn for a half hour, for an hour, somewhere along those lines. And one of the things that typically happens, <clears throat> people will upgrade or refurbish their offices or their in and out exits from the office to the factory. They paint the doors. They paint over the data plate. You have to keep that data plate clear not only so that you know what it is, but also when the fire marshal comes in to inspect your area, if that data plate is painted over, that could definitely be, be a violation. Not could be, it would be a violation of the law. So this here is a very interesting little book, NFPA 1 Fire Code Handbook 2018. So this particular handbook is a starting off point. It provides pictures and graphs and charts and e-forms and all kinds of stuff. And it references the 130 National Fire Protection Codes and Standards that you could have to abide by. I don't know if anybody's gonna have to abide by all 130, but this puts it all in one place for you. So you can work through what you need and pick out what you need to do and then further look at it. It also gives a, a checklist for certificate of fitness. And I wanted to expand on that. Certificate of fitness is kind of a kind of a generic term, so to speak. And in this particular one, we're not talking about fit for duty or anything like that. We're talking about sprinklers, standpipes, alarms, portable fire extinguishers, that type of fitness. If you are new to safety or want to verify that you are compliant with fire safety and emergency exit codes, this book is a great tool to use. It gives you a highlight of the codes and provides guidance on which codes will pertain to your operations. This can be a significant cost savings because as you know, you can look at a lot of the NFPA books on their website for free, but you can't download them and you can't print them some of these are five and 600 pages, so it can be labor intensive to sit and look through the, the computer flipping through the pages for you. So this one here can give you that roadmap of which particular standards you may need. Uh, unfortunately, this one is not free um, because it isn't a regulation because it's a guide map, it's a roadmap. It, they, they do charge for this one, so you're, you would have to decide if it was worth uh, the cost for you or not, but it's a really great a really great tool to verify that you are hitting every regulation you need. And like I mentioned, certainly if you're new to safety, you may not know where to go. One of the things about OSHA is when you're reading a regulation, you're reading a standard, it will say ANSI this or NFPA this, and you must abide by that as well. So this will give you a great, a great resource. 
So we're going to move into Chernobyl. So it's been 35 years um, since the accident, and there's been a lot of publication. There's been a lot of continued work. Um, you know, there's parts that will always be considered a hot spot because they will never be free. And obviously, the lasting effect for folks that are still alive or family members that experience this, it's a, it's a very um, delicate subject. So the International Nuclear Safety Advisory Group, one and seven, issued reports about what happened and why it happened and what could be done to correct it. There were a lot of shortcuts according to the reports. The plant was not designed to safety standards. It was an inadequate safety analysis. We always talk about safety reviews, job safety analysis, risk assessments. That's where you start your job, and it's important to do a complete one before you execute the job so that you're not ending up in trouble. Safety information was not adequately and effectively communicated, and we've spoken about that already, and I'm sure you've heard that a million times. It's great to have plans in place, but if those plans are not communicated, not only to the right people, but pretty much all the people at some level, your plan is useless. The operators did not adequately understand the safety aspects. They were not given the authority to do what they felt was right, and they were overseen by their leaders. One of the things that came back was this quote here that says there was a general lack of safety culture in nuclear matters at the national level as well as locally. The term safety culture, of course, is all over the place now. Everybody wants somebody to have a safety culture. They want you to develop a safety culture. And it's definitely a hot topic. Safety culture, while it's been used in many, many documents, this particular report by the Nuclear Safety Advisory Group is given credit for coining the term safety culture. It was really, it's been posted that it was the first time that safety culture was used as a rationale and part of a corrective action and part of a findings as to why something happened. And, you know, safety culture seems simple. However, it can be complex and enduring traits reflect fundamental values, norms, assumptions, and expectations from leaders, frontline employees, and everyone in between that they all need to share that same value towards safety. Leadership especially, leadership has to be visible. Leadership cannot just simply be a statement, we want to do good work, we don't want to harm our people, we don't want to harm, harm the environment. Yes, that's all true, and we want them to support that, but leadership at any level has to be visible. So these are nine characteristics of a safety culture. This development came from the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement. While it did come from Bessie, as you can see, it really can be applied to any business. Leadership, hazard identification, personal accountability, work processes, safe work practices, continuous improvement, raising concerns, safety communication, respect, collaboration, and definitely continuing to question. Why did we do this? Why didn't we do this? Definitely continue to question so that you know where you are and what's going on. So there were 
a lot of changes to the nuclear industry as a result of the Chernobyl accident. Uh, there's many, 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 and certainly many than I've listed here, you know, the World Health Organizations, but they definitely did put in a couple of things, automatic shutdown mechanisms, uh, make sure that safety mechanisms cannot be overridden, review safety projects, definitely a lot of work that was done from a global, global level. The Eastern and Western countries have worked together to put safety measures in place, realizing that potential global damage and effect could arise from another nuclear disaster. Automatic shutdowns reduce the likelihood of human interaction with equipment, systems, and each other. The intent is to have a program in place that will avoid such an event. There's a little bit of greatness with automatic safety shut-ins because if people are under stress, distraught, panicked, they may not think appropriately. So having that artificial intelligence to take control, slide those protectors in, shut those systems down when they reach a point, there is value to having some of these uh, computerized technologies in place. So now we want to look at Deepwater Horizon. And Deepwater Horizon is probably known to pretty much everybody. Um, it was a catastrophic event that happened in April of 2010. So it's been just 11 years. And the loss of lives, the devastation to the ecosystem, um, the prolonged cleanup that happened was quite amazing. As you probably recall, it took about three months to put the fire out. That's pretty standard time. Um, back in the 80s, there was a very significant fire in Australia as well, and it took about 84 days to extinguish that fire as well. It's a really long, hard process to put out a fire in one of these in one of these rigs. So we're going to talk just briefly about the Deepwater Horizon incident and what the findings were. So the government issued a report that it was defective cement in the well, the White House blamed British Petroleum, uh, cost-cutting, inadequate safety systems, systemic root cause. The systemic root cause is considered as persistent and persuasive condition that affects most levels of the organization. Like we just talked about before with safety culture, it's every level of the organization. Everybody needs to take ownership of safety at their level. Even if it's just mentoring a coworker, you're still looking to have someone else's safety. And they just felt that, you know, it was identified as a primary factor leading to low performance or a higher incident rate. So there were significant changes put in place quickly to provide stronger oversight on offshore or operations. The offshore industry moved quickly to meet these new regulations. So Bessie, the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, uh, their, this is their mission statement, is to promote safety, protect the environment, and conserve resources offshore through vigorous regulatory oversight and enforcement. Vigorous regulatory oversight and enforcement. This particular regulation is heavily governed and uh, audited frequently, and, and we're going to talk about that going forward. So Bessie started out being Bomer, and then they split it because it was originally land and offshore, but then the government realized that 
offshore needed its own regulatory body because of the amount of work that's done offshore and the criticality of it. So again, both OSHA and BESI draw from outside sources to develop standards and regulations to support worker safety. Organizations such as ANSI standards, National Fire Protection Agencies, and the American Petroleum Institute are significant resources. There are similarities between the operations of the two regulators, but there are key differences in regulatory requirements between OSHA and BESI. Both agencies will investigate after a significant incident. Both agencies have incident reporting requirements. Both agencies conduct periodic inspections of selected locations. Both agencies have the authority to issue fines and citations. One significant difference between the two organizations is the auditing process. OSHA will audit a percentage of organizations based on risk, injury rate, perhaps fatalities, a complaint, a concern. Uh, OSHA may not ever audit the organization again, or they may never audit an organization. I think that I saw that OSHA audited 5,000 facilities in 2020. Now, again, that was down low because of COVID, but it was 5,000 facilities um, across the nation um, in, in 2020, which was not very many when you stop and think about how many industries there are. Uh, OSHA does not require safety audits or inspections on a scheduled basis. However, they do consider a self-safety audit as an effective safety plan. This is one of the changes with BESI. BESI does require safety audits routinely every three years. After the release of the regulation, Safety and Environmental Management Systems and or SEMS, the first round of audits was conducted within the first two years. Going forward, the audit schedule is every three years. There are requirements for how many facilities are audited. For instance, if an operator owns, you know, 100, 100 facilities, he has to select 15% of those facilities that he's going to put into the audit plan for the government to audit. The government doesn't audit all 100 facilities. That would be impossible to do with the amount of offshore assets that there are. These audits are routine audits that every operator must undergo. Now, Bessie can enforce a Bessie audit, which is typically because something happened. There was either a fire, there was a spill, there was a significant injury, there was a fatality, and those can happen at any time. They do not have to fall into that three-year cycle. So the, the regulation requirements and the auditing requirements between OSHA and Bessie are very significantly different. So I wanted to give you just a quick graph of the history of SEMS. And SEMS started 20 years ago, 1991, and it was just a recommended practice through American Petroleum Institute. After the Deepwater Horizon event in April of 2020, on a, or April 20th of 2010, excuse me, by April 30th, the president directed the Department of the Interior to review and report on improving the offshore continental shelf safety record. In May, they came back 
and said, okay, we're going to use RP75 and we're going to make that the standard. Then in October, SEMS 1 was the final rule and it was published. So in a matter of April to October, this new regulation was put in place and operators had to be compliant with the regulation pretty much immediately. In September 14th of the following year, they came back with an update. Um, and then every so many years, the program is updated again. So it's very interesting that this recommended practice was now adopted by the government to become the standard. And that again goes back to NFPA or life-saving codes or any other ANSI regulation that's referenced in OSHA, you must be aware of these other industry publications that could impact how you have to operate your business. So during the 2010-2019 timeline was when the SEMS became enforceable. In 2019, there was a review and significant changes were made to the document. One key change was contractor management. This was a new element within SEMS. As we spoke about, they wrote SEMS or they adopted SEMS and then a year later they came with an update. These are the six things that they realized were missing in the original SEMS 1 and the rule became known as SEMS 2. So obviously it was the JSA. The JSA was something that needed to be enhanced. A typical JSA is three columns, tasks, hazards, controls. That's a typical JSA form. For offshore oil and gas, it's four columns, tasks, hazards, controls, and person responsible for the task. It's not okay to write welder. It's not okay to write roustabout you must put the name of the person responsible for that task. This again goes back to accountability and ownership of the person performing the work. As we mentioned, auditing. So the auditing cycle is every three years and the auditing must be done by an independent source. There are audit service providers that have been accredited by Bessie to go out and perform the audits. The operators are not allowed to just hire any auditor they want to. It must be an independent auditor to go through and look at their work. Stop work authority was another big one uh, because they felt that the lack of stop work authority was a contributing factor to the Deepwater Horizon event. So with stop work authority, you know, the thing about it is it should always be exercised because it is better to stop an event and say, nope, everything was okay, rather than be quiet and have an event and then be saying, wow, I could have stopped this or wow, that person got hurt because I didn't stop this. So stop work authority should always be used. It's better to ask than to find out something that you didn't ask about. An interesting one also is ultimate work authority. The person on the facility, there must be a person on the facility that is designated as the person with ultimate work authority. This person is the only one that can restart a job after a job has been stopped. It's the responsibility of this particular assigned person, 
which is usually the operation installation manager, the OIM or the PIC, the person in charge. And they have the authority to restart the job after they have confirmed that whatever was stopped was either a non-issue or that it was corrected and rectified. And then the JSA must be re-signed that the work was restarted by the person with UWA. There's a lot of accountability in offshore oil and gas um, that a lot of people may not have, have realized. Number five, which is employee participation plan, I personally really like because the employee participation plan is a great addition. It engages workers at all levels to participate in the design communication and execution of the safety management system, regardless of their roles or level of responsibility. The more minds, the better. Your workers are actually your SME. While your engineers understand the process and they understand the hazards that should be, they are not the ones out there running that tool, running that piece of equipment. So the employee participation plan requires you to get input and to have a communication with your employees about their work and about the plan in itself. I think that's a tremendous bonus no matter what your occupation is. And then the last one, which is really quite interesting, is reporting unsafe working conditions. Everybody knows that you can uh, unanimously, unanimously, anonymously, that's the word I want, excuse me, report an accident or an injury and the whistleblower is supposed to protect you and all of that kind of stuff. With Bessie, what they did is they created a poster and you don't have to use it, you can use your own, but they created a poster and it gives an email, a phone number, a mailing address of where anybody can report an unsafe working condition if they don't feel comfortable speaking up right then and there at the moment. And the regulation that the inspectors look for is that, that posting of where people can report unsafe working conditions must be posted in a visible area, a common room, usually a break room or the kitchen or somewhere like that where everybody is going to go to. So it's very, it's very interesting that the, that the offshore regulators want that information. They want people to be able to speak freely to them if they don't feel that they can speak freely to their manager because they want to know what is going on in order to prevent another incident like Deepwater Horizon. So these are the SEMS requirements from the third edition. And the third edition is the one that we're operating on and running under right now. And it's pretty standard stuff, just a general statement, safety and environmental information, hazard analysis, uh, operating, safe work, critical equipment, all the normal kind of stuff. And then this is the fourth edition. And as you can see, it's a little different. Um, the fourth edition is not adopted by the government yet. We are still running under the third, but we certainly think that the government is going to take the fourth. So just a couple of real quick little things is this here is general and then leadership. And the other one, it was general and safety and environmental information. We now have decided that leadership is a pretty significant thing. The other thing is the SEMS interface management. So that's a new requirement. 
SEMS interface management did not exist before. That is your work agreement, your scope of work, your bridging agreement, whatever you want to talk about, however you want to call it. It's where you put together assignment of responsibility of who's going to do this and who's going to do that. And then there were just some changes um, in the overall language itself. So over here, we have investigation of incidents. On the new one, we have investigating and learning from incidents because it's great to investigate an incident, but if you don't share those learnings, then you don't really get that communication out. So the document was rewritten, was rewritten and it was believed that it is a much better document. And here's part of the reason why. So this is a snippet from the regulation for hazard analysis. And as you can see, it's very long. It's quite a narrative. And this is actually what's in the Code of Federal Regulations, CFR, uh, Part 250. What we found was that, we found that what was happening is that companies were creating their own company SEMs by simply cut and pasting what was here. They were not actually writing a management system that was specific to their scope of work. It met the regulation, they passed the audit, but it really wasn't a good way of doing business. Certainly not to keep your people safe and to keep the public safe. This is the same requirement, but like we spoke about, now it's risk assessment and controls rather than hazard analysis. And as you can see, it simply gives a purpose an expectation, and then some things that are required. There's no narrative, it is bullet points. You must create your own document. So, you know, as we, as we know, you know, OSHA may go on for years and years and years before standard is reviewed or revised. The process is referred to as a look back review. The reviews are not on a periodic schedule. Most often the changes take a long time, like we spoke about earlier, and they can be labor intensive for, for organizations to adhere to. There's usually a proposed rule, a comment period, resolution of comments, and then a final ruling. The final ruling, like we spoke about, can be quick within six months, or it can be staggered and take over a couple of years, depending upon the amount of change that has to be done. With Bessie, the SEMS standard is on a review schedule based on API, the American Petroleum Institute, and API typically reviews their standards every three to five years. It can take a while to complete the review. It can take a couple of years. Again, there's an announcement to the public, a grace period for com comments, and then another area for compliance. <clears throat> One of the key things about the review of SEMS is that it's a group of industry organizations and Bessie to discuss and make the changes. It is a true collaboration of the industry and the regulator discussing what the needs are and the solutions are. As you can see from this narrative that was just out of the Code of Federal Regulations and this narrative, when the oil companies got together and said, okay, we need to make something a little better. They realized the shortcomings of the original document itself, and they wanted to give something back to the public that was much better. So as far as the regulatory interpretations, 
So Bessie is responsible for developing, implementing, and enforcing regulations concerning oil and gas on the outer continental shelf. Bessie understands the meaning of a regulation. Bessie takes their regulations very seriously. And like the beginning slide said, they have a vigorous, active role in ensuring and guaranteeing that their regulations are followed and are met. As mentioned in slide 26, the characteristics of the safety culture will transfer to any industry. So one of the interesting things was that after issuing SEMS 2, which was those six add-ons, JSA, Safe Work Practices, Ultimate Work Authority, Stop Work Authority, Bessie realized that they really kind of wanted to create that safety culture policy statement, which is where they came up with their rule of nine. Um, Bessie does not regulate safety culture. All SIMS requirements should lead to a culture that embraces communication, risk awareness, team management of risk, and a learning environment. Bessie also defines safety culture as core values and behaviors of all. When the rewrite was just done, the fourth edition, several months into the rewrite, uh, the regulator did come in several months, maybe two years into the rewrite, the regulator did come back and ask if uh, safety culture could be added into the regulation. And I was part of that rewrite team and we said to the regulator, we can't do it because safety culture is such a large, enormous topic. We don't have the time to add it into this particular rewrite because of the time constraints that we had. So going forward, when the next rewrite comes up in a couple of, in three to five years, safety culture will most likely be written into the offshore oil and gas regulations because we already know that, that the regulator has asked for it. So these again are some documents. Uh, they are based for offshore oil. However, they are good documents for any industry. And one of the things that's a really good document is uh, COS 3-03, Guidelines for SEMS Maturity Self-Assessment. And this is a grading system where you can say, when I review my safety program, does it meet the expectations? Does it meet some of the expectations? Does it meet all of them? Does it exceed them? So you can grade your safety management system, whatever your safety management system is. And it would really be interesting, you might find it really interesting to go ahead and do that critique of your safety management systems and see what kind of a grade you end up with. Because that's what these audits are all about, is it is a opportunity for closure in the gaps in your safety systems so that we don't have any more events so that we're not part of a historical event down the road that people are learning from us. We would like to have less of those. And here's another one um, about the auditing process. And you know, these, these are definitely offshore oil and gas. However, they translate to any industry at all. And these are great starting off points if you don't have something. So these documents, just to give you a quick idea, so when a SEMS audit is due, the plan must be drafted and approved by the regulator. The audit can then be scheduled. The audit process is a review of the plan and the systems, which typically means the auditor is given access to the operator's systems. 
And then the next step is an in-person review of the documents at the operator's headquarters with the engineers and with the safety professionals. And then the third step is actually the field audit where they go out and say, okay, this is what you said you do, now prove it to me. So you can see how these audits for every operator, not just random, based on risk or based on hazard or, or fatalities, this is for every operator that they undergo. And that's why I encourage you to look at these documents because they are heavily, heavily regulated and they are really built for pretty much any industry at all. And then these here are the references and the hyperlinks to the codes and the different catalogs in case you have any interest and in case you wanted to look at it and go back and look at it some more yourself um, and educate yourself or find out where to get these. And like I say, the fire protection codes usually are free online. You can down, you can open them. You can't download them. You can't uh, save them. You can't print them, but you can review them. But fire protection codes sometimes can be three to 500 pages long. Um, and that's why, like I say, if you don't mind the expense, that NSPA uh, one, where it's that mapping for you, what you need might be a really, really valuable tool for anyone. Um, so that is the end of my presentation. And Alan, back to you. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Laurie. Um, before we start the q and I want to remind everyone about the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is important because it'll help us improve our future webcasts. Okay, now let's get to some questions. Uh, how do you know which regulations other than OSHA you need to be compliant with? Well, that's a, that can be a tough one. Um, you have to ensure that you've met all the requirements you need to perform to need to perform an audit and verify what your operations and needs are. While you may think you know what you do, you may not know. You might be surprised what you learn. It's always a good practice to bring in other trades, such as your mechanic, your machine operator, your plumber, along with your safety professional to do the same audit, but have them do it independently because as they're looking at it with fresh eyes, they're looking at it from what their training is and they're gonna see things that the other departments aren't gonna see. See, you also need to search city codes if you're in a municipality. There could be inspection requirements from your city as well. Um, there are numerous templates available through either your workers' comp carrier or the internet. And don't forget to check the OSHA regulation and look within the standard if it references an ANSI or an API or an ASME or any other type of industry publication. Because while those publications are not enforceable from them, like ANSI can't come in and fine you, OSHA can fine you for not being ANSI compliant. So it's really starting with a good audit to determine what your scope of work is um, beyond what you think is beyond what you think it is of manufacturing widgets. So our next question: Can a safety officer overrule an incident commander during an emergency? Um, my answer to that is no. Um, incident commander is the highest authority. And, you know, my, my response to that would be no. The incident commander is the one that's had the training. They're the ones that have the operations. They're the ones that get the immediate detail and the phone calls. The safety officer absolutely should contribute 
and if the safety officer has concerns, then definitely they need to voice that to the incident commander or the incident commander's superior. But in my opinion, no, the safety officer cannot override the incident commander. Uh, what is the recommended practice for emergency in fire training and drills? So usually those are annual. Um, you're supposed to have annual fire drill training with timings, how long did it take you to get out, make sure that you have all of that documentation. And of course, obviously with incipient fires and fire extinguisher training, uh, you know, you need to make sure that you're doing that annually as well. One of the things that people need to be mindful of when they're doing their emergency response training is the extra step because of COVID. You know, in the past, let's say we were doing hurricane, tornado, active shooter training. One of the things that you would do Go to your safe room, stay in your safe room. If it was active shooter, you'd put the bar up to make sure they can't come in. Now, because of COVID, you might have to have two or three safe rooms because you may have to space your people out. We have lack of ventilation. We have close contact. We have how long you're going to be in there. We don't know. So you need to really stop and think about the impact of COVID with your emergency responses as well. But typically, your training is annually. It looks like we have time for one more question. Um, so this person asked that inspectors, including the fire marshal, utilize um, IBC um, or international building codes. Mm -hmm. And they state that NFPA is only recommended. First of all, is that correct? And what has precedent, IBC or NFPA? Um, so depending upon if you're in a municipality or not, it could very well be NFPA. And all of those, and that's what I had, had mentioned, is that all of these ANSI standards, uh, ASME, SME, National Fire Protection Agencies, these are not usually regulatory bodies like OSHA or like BESI. These are industry professionals that have recommended practices or that have standards that your regulator refers back to because the regulator believes that they've done a good job in writing a standard and they support that. So could the fire marshal cite you for something? Yes, of course he can. But he can also bring that to OSHA's attention and then you can be you know, really really in, in, in a little bit of a pickle, um, not being a long to it, but you're correct. Uh, national building codes are something that need to be adhered to as well. We did have someone ask, wouldn't it be IFC instead of IBC? What is the IFC acronym? Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm guessing International Fire Council. I am not familiar with that. I do know IBC. Um, I am not familiar with IFC. Okay. Well, International Fire Code, excuse me. Thank you. Thank you, folks. Appreciate it. <laughs> so International Fire Code, the International Building Code. I will have to look. Something that I've learned today. Okay. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you, everyone. And uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry that we get, didn't get to everyone's questions, but unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Again, we also hope you take the time to share your feedback through our survey. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Lori Kanapi, our sponsor of VEBA, and of course, everyone who joined us today. Take care and be safe. <laughs>